a story or two to attach to that. That's a song that's ministered incredibly over the years. Thirty years ago, I was an 18-year-old, brand-new EMT in the state of New Hampshire, and just cutting my teeth in medicine. And uh, I knew all of the classic signs and symptoms of a heart attack. When you train to be an EMT, they explain things very carefully so that you can recognize it without difficulty. Uh, but they say that when someone's having a heart attack, denial is a pretty strong emotion. Well, we got the call to go to this gentleman's house in a little place called Epsom, New Hampshire, and I'll never forget it. Arrived at the house, and there was an older gentleman, and he was uh, sitting on the couch and sweating profusely. His heart rate was rapid and weak and his chest pain, the pressure was enormous, radiating down his left arm through his jaw, just very, very classic. Um, put him on the heart monitor, classic rhythm for someone having a heart attack, and put him on oxygen, got him onto the stretcher and out to the ambulance, and as I was attending him in the back of the ambulance, I was trying to make some small talk to take his mind off of the incredible discomfort that he was experiencing, and I said to him, and uh, actually, he offered this before I had a chance, now that I recall. He said, listen, he said, I know I'm having a myocardial infarction. That's what he called it, an MI. And I said, how do you know this? And how do you even know the term? And he said, I'm a retired cardiologist. And, uh, and I said, wow. And then I made this statement. I said, I'm sure you're not having a heart attack. And uh, that's, the, that's the denial part. He wasn't in denial. I was. I was scared to death. I didn't, and, uh, and he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm sure. And he's actually, he was looking at the rhythm on the, the heart monitor with me, and he was telling me exactly what he was seeing. And uh, he knew it far better than I would ever come to learn that. And, and, uh, and he said, no, he said, this is what's happening, and I can tell you what's going to happen next. And sure enough, and, and, uh, and I remember being in the back of that ambulance, scared to death, and at the same time wondering, how could someone who has invested so many years of their life studying the heart and, and caring for the heart and repairing the heart, how could someone with such profound knowledge of the heart, how could that person themselves be having heart failure? And, uh, and, the, and the irony of that has never escaped me. Well, sure enough, just a, about three minutes out from the hospital, uh, he went into cardiac arrest, and boy, I th don't think I ever pushed on a chest harder in my life. And uh, we got him into the emergency room, and they were able to revive him fairly quickly. It was such an immediate response. And, uh, and I don't know how long he lived after that, but I remember thinking uh, the irony that someone who specialized in the heart could succumb to, to heart difficulty. Of course, you know, that just goes without saying. It's appointed unto man once to die, and that's going to be all of us at some point, right? No matter what we know. Well, I want to carry that over to the spiritual for just a moment. In chapter 4 of Proverbs, we read these words in verse 20. My son, attend, attend to my words. Incline thy ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart 
from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life unto those that find them in health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Verse 20, My son, attend to my words, incline thine ear unto my sayings. Somehow God links his word with our heart. And this has been the theme of our study in the Upper Room Discourse that we began back in September and we've looked at periodically. And tonight, Lord willing, we'll bring that to a close. But as we come over to John chapter 13, and we've been studying this time that our Lord has had with his disciples together. In John chapter, did I say 13? John chapter 16. In this time that our Lord has had with his disciples, he's been pouring into them his words, desiring to have an effect upon their hearts. His desire has been that what he has to say will somehow have an effect on how they understand life from this moment forward and how they respond to the difficulties that are going to come upon them. I, uh, I've given... I've made just a, a list of some of the places that we've been together in this upper room discourse. Uh, we've looked at the words of Christ and we've said that we need a heart that, and let me give you the list. Beginning at chapter 13, we need a heart that appreciates the exactness of God's timing. Remember that? And when the time had come, Jesus knew that his time uh, to be glorified had come. And we need a heart that appreciates the exactness of God's timing, a heart that is humble towards others, is cleansed of sin, desires to serve. Remember the foot washing that was taking place? Is loyal to God. Remember Judas going out and forsaking, and Peter saying, I'll never deny you, but of course he did. We need a heart that's loyal to God. We need a heart that seeks to glorify God and seeks to love others. In chapter 13, Jesus said, I have a new commandment for you one of new quality, one that is going to be, uh, the, the, in which you'll be empowered to obey through the indwelling spirit of God, and that's that you love one another. In chapter 14, we've said that we need a heart that is reassured. Jesus says in chapter 14, uh, he says, I don't want you to be worried. Let not your heart be troubled and believe. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place, but I'm coming again. We need a heart that is reassured, a heart that believes God, a heart that prays to God, a heart that loves God. We need a heart that obeys the commandments of God. We need a heart that is controlled by the Spirit of God, that discerns the truth of God, that is teachable concerning the things of God. We need a heart that is courageous because of the peace of God and a heart that rejoices in the plan of God. All of that is in chapter 14. And then we moved into chapter 15, that great passage about the vine and the abiding. And so we need a heart that is dependent upon God, a heart that desires fruit in the work of God, a heart that expects rejection and persecution, a heart that purposes to be separated from the world, and a heart that doesn't make excuse for sin, a heart that bears witness of Christ. You see that in the last verse of chapter 15, a heart that bears witness of Christ. Now, as we move into chapter 16, where we started this morning, this morning we spent time on 
understanding our need for a heart that is comforted by the Spirit. In uh, the end of chapter 15, beginning of chapter 16, uh, Jesus is speaking, and he, and he writes, or rather he says to his disciples that he has to go so that he can send the comforter. And in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. He uses this term comforter, or paraclete, to describe the Holy Spirit. And that word literally means someone who comes alongside of another to render aid. And so our heart has the privilege of being comforted even in a time of transition, a time of not knowing what tomorrow holds. And that's true for us. It was certainly true of the disciples in Jesus' day. Their world was about to be turned absolutely upside down. And Jesus wants them to know that one of the things he's going to do with the Father is send the Spirit to comfort them. And now moving further, I would suggest this, that we need a heart that understands the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Come down with me to verse 8. Jesus says in verse 8 of chapter 16, And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. This is a ministry of the Spirit. He'll reprove or he'll convince or he'll, he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So these three things the Spirit of God will do when he comes and he makes his abode within the church. These three things of, of reproving or convincing, convicting this, this, uh, the, the world of their sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And now let's, let's talk about this for just a minute. What does that mean? Well, the world, apart from an understanding that's given by God through the Spirit and is often uh, appreciated through the preaching or the teaching, the sharing of others, as we see here in verse 27 of chapter 15, you shall bear witness. The world, apart from having the witness of who God is, is really in, in unbelief. And, it, and, and so they live in the sin of unbelief. But when the Spirit of God came on Pentecost, as Jesus prophetically taught here, when the Spirit of God would come, he would empower the church then to bear witness of who Christ is and therefore bringing a light into the world. The Spirit of God would empower believers to help unbelievers understand the sin of unbelief that they were living under. And so when Jesus says that the, that the Spirit, the Comforter, is coming to reprove the world of sin, part of, that, part of that is through you and I. How will people know of their unbelief if we don't have a part in sharing that with them? Now, some people already know of their guilt because they're just so guilty before God. They understand their guilt. But it's the Spirit of God, I would suggest, that brings an understanding of that. He says he'll, he'll bring an understanding or a reproving of sin and of righteousness. If you think about all of the religions of the world, there, there are religions that are of, of the character of self-righteousness. All of the religions in the world where people are trying to work their way towards appeasing God somehow, it's a self-righteous approach. In the days of our Lord, the Jewish religion in large part had become a self-righteous religion. 
if I do enough good works, then I will be considered good enough. And if I'm good enough, then I get heaven. That's self-righteousness. One of the reasons Jesus would be arrested and crucified is because he was deemed absolutely unrighteous. But the incredible irony is he was the only one in their midst who was absolutely righteous. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, through believing, we have his righteousness imputed upon us. We understand that concept. And so we know that our salvation is not based on our own righteousness, but it's based upon Christ's righteousness. And it's the Spirit of God that brings that home to our understanding. So the Spirit of God, and often through the preaching and sharing and ministry of God's people that are empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit of God reproves or convinces the world of their sin and of what righteousness really is and what it isn't, and then this thing called judgment. Jesus knew that the, that the prince of the world was going to come up against him. Satan himself would come up against him, but he had nothing on him. And Jesus knew and was relating to his disciples that there was victory at hand. In the victory, and we're going to speak a little bit more about that at the end of the chapter, the victory that Christ looked forward to was indeed, I think, the judgment of Satan ultimately, eventually and ultimately. We sometimes phrase it this way, we've read the last chapter and we win, right? We know that there's judgment to come for Satan and his demons and for unbelievers. Uh, some live in the world today without any concept of a judgment, without any concept of accountability. Some live in our world today without any sense that they will one day answer to an ultimate holy God. The Spirit of God, through the witness of God's people, is certainly able to reprove or convince or convict people of that false understanding and bring people to an understanding that, you know what, I am living in the sin of unbelief. There is a righteousness to be attained, and it's not my own righteousness. And there is judgment coming one day for those that are in unbelief. And that judgment is coming on the very basis of what Christ's death has accomplished. When Christ came, it was to destroy the works of the devil. And that will ultimately be seen in the final judgment. And so the Spirit has a ministry of convicting or reproving or convincing. And we simply need to have a heart that understands that. I was sharing the gospel with a gentleman recently and as I was walking through just the the simple outline of the gospel the impression that I got in this conversation was simply this he, he sensed that he was probably good enough what does that individual need does he need a pat on the back saying well I guess you are pretty good no he needs to be brought to a place where he understands he's not good enough and as long as he continues to believe that, uh, then, then salvation is just out of reach. But through our continued exposure of truth to those that we know and love, the Spirit of God will have opportunity to bring about that reproving or convincing, convicting ministry. So we need a heart that understands that. We also need a heart that comprehends the glory of the sun. Look at verse 14 with me in, ch in chapter uh, 16. Speaking of the Spirit of God, 
We'll just back up to verse 13. Jesus says this, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever ye shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you the things to come. This is absolutely consistent with Jesus' own approach. The words that Jesus spoke and the works that Jesus did were not his own, were they? They were of the Father. He's made that clear earlier in, in this passage. And now he says the words, the things that the Spirit of God does, will be, will be not to show himself. But look at the next verse. Verse 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All the things that the Father have are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. And so the Spirit's joy, I believe, would be to bring glory to the Son because it's the Son who deserves all glory. And Jesus is reiterating this truth. We need a heart that comprehends the glory of God. Next, we need a heart that rejoices in the resurrection of Christ. And I want to spend a few minutes here. Let's pick it up here in verse 16 and read down to verse 22. Jesus is not only telling them he's going away, but he's going to tell them that he's going to come back. A little while they won't see him, and a little while they will. Speaking of his resurrection, let's pick it up in verse 16. He says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. And then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little, a little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father? So they're, they're, they're wondering, what does he mean by this? Verse, verse 18. They, they said, therefore, What is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and he said unto them, Do you inquire among yourselves of, of that I said, A little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me? Well, the answer is obvious. Yes, we do inquire. We are wondering, what do you mean by this? And so he, he, he gives a little bit more clarity to this. Look at verse 20. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep, and lament. That's a, that's a strong word for grief. He shall weep and lament. He's talking about his crucifixion, isn't he? You shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned unto joy. And what does it take? to turn sorrow to joy. Some of you in our church family here have grieved the loss of loved ones far beyond any grief that I've yet experienced. And you know exactly what it takes to turn sorrow into joy. And you know this not simply theologically, but you, but you know it, you know it with every fiber of your being. And it's this, it's the resurrection. It's the confidence that the resurrection brings, knowing that one day you'll see your loved one again. It's the confidence of the resurrection that turns our sorrow into joy. Let's watch this. Verse, 
Verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned unto joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. I remember years ago when Beth was giving birth to our oldest, Will. And uh, that was a long labor. I don't know how it was for you, but it was long for me. And uh, it was, I mean, boy, was it long. And it went from one day into the next day and and just exhausting. And, And when he was finally born in the early, early hours of the morning, I remember, and many of you have had the same experience, I remember marveling at how God turned all of that, that pain and exhaustion and sorrow that you were experiencing through the delivery process. And, uh, and, and your words, if you remember, your words were this, I would do this all over again in a heartbeat. And, uh, it was, and those were immediate words. And I was, I was impressed by that. But that's the illustration that Jesus is using. When, when, there's, when there's the pain and the difficulty and the sorrow accompanied with childbirth, he says as soon as that mom looks into the face of that life, that life, it's the life that turns sorrow into joy. And it's the resurrection of life that turns sorrow into joy. And Jesus says in verse 22, And ye now therefore have sorrow. He's not minimizing their sorrow, is he? He's not saying things to them like, Listen, guys, you have no reason to be upset. Yes, I'm going to be persecuted, and yes, I'm going to be beaten, and yes, I'm going to be crucified, but come on, guys, get over it. I'm God. This is what I have to do. He doesn't talk like that at all, does he? He doesn't say things like, Listen, it's no big deal. It's only short term. There's no reason to be sorrowful at all. If you, if, if you knew what was coming, you wouldn't be sorrowful. You would just kind of go through this without any fear, without any sorrow. But he doesn't say it that way, does he? He acknowledges that their fear is real. He acknowledges that their sorrow is real. When Lazarus, his friend, died, and even though he knew, he knew he was going to resurrect him, In the moments before that resurrection, Jesus' own sorrow was real. He wept. And so I and I appreciate that about our Lord. You know, we talk about people being real and people being vulnerable and transparent and and it strengthens someone's ministry when you see that in them. And that's exactly who Jesus was. He was touched with every bit of weakness, with every bit of fear and concern that we're touched with. And he's not minimizing this experience with his disciples. He says, I know that you, that you have sorrow. But he doesn't just leave it there. He says, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice. In your joy no man taketh from you. I really like this. Because again, he doesn't minimize their sorrow, their fears, they're lamenting, they're grieving. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them to get over it, that there's no reason for it. But he does give them 
hope as they come through it. And that hope is based on the truth of the resurrection. And that's our hope, isn't it? Paul says to the folks at Corinth in verse 14 of chapter 15, he says in 1 Corinthians, he says, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. It's empty, it's nothing. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. And then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. There's no hope for the dead. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. That's a very clear statement to the fact of the resurrection and to the fact of, of, of what the resurrection offers. And as we go through the difficulties in life and as we come face to face with the worst that life has for us, and that's certainly death. The sting of death is immense. But as we come face to face with that, we also hang on to the hope, to the, to the sorrow being turned into joy and joy that remains because of the confidence that we have in this thing of the resurrection. Just come with me for a brief minute over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, in the last days of his own life, as he writes this final epistle, reflecting on the imminency of his own death, by martyrdom, which is coming. Paul, who writes this epistle from prison without any sense that he may get out, he doesn't have any sense that he might be released. And every and all of his other letters that have been written from prison, there's, there's generally the indication that he has a sense of moving forward beyond his prison experience, but not in this letter. In this letter, he knows his time has come, and he's ready to be offered up. But I want you to see what he does here with this idea of how do I get through the toughest days? What is it that turns my sorrow into joy, as we've just been talking about? So look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, he says, Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Now what he's about to do with Timothy, watch this. He's not just going to give Timothy historical information about the resurrection. Timothy already knows about the resurrection. He's not going to talk about the resurrection just for the sake of historical information. He's going to talk about the resurrection for the very purpose of giving Timothy hope and courage in the midst of persecution. Watch how he does it. Verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel. Now look at the effects of this. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. I'm in jail. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. So if we could interview Paul on the day of his writing of this part of the epistle, we might ask this question, Paul, 
in your estimation, what would be the worst thing that could happen to you today? And he might say, well, they could kill me today. And then we could say, Paul, what would be the best thing that could happen to you today? And he might say, well, they could kill me today. Because when I die, then I live. Then I live. Then I, then I get to truly live in, in eternity. That's his confidence. And he couldn't have that confidence if it wasn't for the truth of the resurrection. And if it wasn't for taking the, the Spirit of God, taking the truth of the resurrection and bringing it home to him experientially and giving him a quiet peace and confidence. I wonder, as we think of the persecuted church around the world, how many brothers and sisters we would have in Christ who even in this very hour are undergoing the the immeasurable strain of persecution and yet not just enduring it but but profiting if I can say it carefully this way but profiting through it living through it with, with in a profitable way because of their incredible confidence in the life which is to come we don't I don't think we often Maybe I can only speak for myself. But I don't know that I often think of life in the sense of eternity. I know Paul says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. But in the normal course of a day, we're not always setting our affections on things above. We're not always looking at life in terms of eternity future. We often are looking at life and trying to reason through life with just the here and now what we're faced with, the, the dilemma, the difficulty, the discouragement, the depression. Sometimes it's just what we're facing right here and now, and we try to deal with it in the context of the immediate and the urgent. And yet the reality is Jesus here is telling his disciples to deal with the toughest stuff that's about to come up, to deal with it in light of what eternity holds for them. Yes, I'm going away. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, we're going to be separated. Yes, your grief is going to be immense, but it doesn't stop there. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. So we need a heart that rejoices in the resurrection of Christ. Next, we need a heart that knows the joy of answered prayer. Verse 22. Jesus says, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you, and in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus has been with his disciples these past three years. He has supplied their need above and beyond. And now he's saying, I'm going to go from you and you'll ask the Father for all that you have need of. And I would say the context here is in relationship to their ministry, to their life and ministry. And he said, in all that you have need of, the Father will grant to you. You shall receive. And the result of that will be that your joy will be full. Again, he, he, looks, he looks at their position of, of want and need. And he says, out of that, out of that place of want and need can come joy. 
And the way you get from want in need to joy is you, is you commune with the Father and you receive what the Father is so glad to give to you. And, it's, and, it, and, it, and it may simply be only what you need for the day. But with respect to their life and ministry, he says, ask the Father in my name and he will give it to you. We need a heart that knows the joy of answered prayer. And then finally, we need a heart that enjoys the peace that the overcomer gives. Let's pick it up in verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We need a heart that enjoys the peace that the overcomer gives. Dwight Pentecost recently went home to be with the Lord, one of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dwight Pentecost made this statement. He said, peace comes to the child of God as a result of trusting him in circumstances that would, apart from faith, destroy or dissipate peace. So we, we find ourselves in circumstances that normally would destroy peace, that normally would cause our peace to dissipate or, or to falter, to fail. And it's in those moments where we find circumstances that would come up against our peace, it's in those moments where we, we trust him who is the overcomer, it's in those moments of trust that we get to experience the peace. The peace comes through the trust, not through the circumstances. The peace comes in the midst of the worst conceivable circumstances. The peace is not dependent upon the circumstances. In fact, the peace is in spite of the circumstances. And sometimes we, we, we try to find peace through our circumstances. If only this person would treat me this way, then I would have peace. Then I would have joy. If only this opportunity came to me, then I would have peace. If only this would happen in my life, then I could have peace. And so we, we spend a lifetime, some, and, and especially unbelievers, pursuing peace through circumstances. And yet peace really only comes through trusting in him. That's what Dr. Pentecost said. I happen to believe him. I was in Boston just a few weeks ago with a group of our students, and uh, I had lived and worked in Boston for a number of years before I met my wife, and we moved here to Bible school. And, uh, and I had a few places in Boston that I would, I would frequent to just sit and look out over the ocean and to think. Now, I was a believer, but I was a believer who, in many respects, was running from the Lord, not running to the Lord, in my early 20s, as often is the case, sad to say, but, but that was the case with me. So I was a believer who had a strong heritage. I was a believer who had been well mentored, but coming into my early adult life, I was trying to construct life according to what I thought would bring happiness. And so I had forsaken the faith and the words of my parents, so to speak, for a short season in my life, and I thought I could find 
inner peace on my own. And I remember a number of times sitting on a rock or sitting on a bench. There's a bench right down by the Boston Aquarium that overlooks the harbor and the airport. And that's one of my favorite spots in the whole world just to sit and look. And I can remember back 25 years earlier, sitting on that bench, looking out over the water and talking with God and asking God this question, God, how come there's no peace in my life? I know you. I know Jesus is my Savior. I didn't doubt my salvation. But I wasn't really willing to follow, to, to truly surrender my life. I wasn't really willing to trust him. I was trusting my own instincts. I was trusting my own decision-making and how I would live. But I was lacking peace. I had a very good job. For a young guy in his 20s, I had a very nice car, a very nice home overlooking the ocean. I had all of the things that the world would say, boy, if only I had that job, if only I had that car, if only I had that house, I'd have peace. I had all of the circumstances that should have brought peace if circumstances could bring peace. But I didn't have peace. And I remember sitting on that bench particularly and just crying out to God and saying, God, where's the peace? so troubled inside and uh, and ultimately I found that peace and the peace wasn't through circumstances it was through trust and so just a few weeks ago I was back in Boston and I sat down purposefully on that very same bench looking out over that very same harbor maybe watching some of those same planes coming in I don't know some of them may be old but I remember having an altogether different conversation with God 25 years later. And the conversation went like this, Lord, I can't believe the peace, the satisfaction, the joy that you have granted this heart. This heart that was so longing, so hungry, and looking for your peace and, and joy in all the wrong places. I thought I could find it on my own thank you for reminding me that it's only found in my surrender to you. Now, my circumstances have changed. I've, I've lived a little bit of life. But I've learned that my peace is not found in circumstances. It's found in committing myself to the one who is the overcomer. Let me close with this passage from 1 John chapter 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So our victory is based upon our faith in the overcomer. He, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Our peace is based on our trust in the one who overcomes. We are more than conquerors in him. My prayer for us as a church is that in these days of turmoil and challenges, maybe in your own personal life, in your family, we certainly have a number in our church family who have more than their share of trials. I think of a lot of empty seats these days because of a lot of our folks that just are not well physically. And my prayer, and I'm going to close in prayer now, 
my prayer is, is that they would know God's peace in spite of what's happening. And that we would know God's peace, perhaps in spite of things that are taking place, whether up the road at NBBI with staff transitions, uh, whether here with the absence of a pastor, uh, whatever, whatever might be the thing that would rob us of peace, my prayer is that we would know his peace because we know him. Let's pray. Father, we began this morning by being reminded of the comforter. And we've been reminded tonight of the joy that comes through answered prayer. That you are so pleased to, to answer in response to our needs for life and ministry. And Lord, we've been reminded again of peace that is ours on the on the basis of the resurrection and on the basis of the one who resurrected, the one who overcame. And so, Lord, help us as a church family to continue to trust, to continue to look heavenward, not inward, not sideways, not downward, but to lift our eyes, to set our affections on things above in these days ahead. Help us to move forward with a sense of confidence that no matter how difficult things may look, no matter how real our sorrow and grief may be at times, Lord, give us a quiet, peaceful confidence because of who we belong to and because of what has been accomplished by grace and what will be accomplished by grace. And we'll just be very grateful for that in Christ's name. God bless you folks. Thank you.